Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. I'm pretty sure there isn't a woman who was alive in the 90s who didn't own one of this designer's dresses, or at least one heavily inspired by her from the high street. From the moment they hit the shops, the bias-cut slip dress became ubiquitous, and it still is. And for that, we have to thank Tanya San, the founder of Ghost. Personally, I still have five of her dresses and I'm neither a dress girl nor a sentimental clothes hoarder. These frocks are keepers. Now 78, Tanya was a single mum of two on benefits when she founded Ghost. Divorced and grieving her mum, she thought she was unemployable until she took one look at the lack of well-priced, multifunctional, comfortable, feminine clothes, which went in the washing machine and didn't need ironing and resolved on the spot to put that right. She borrowed £2,000 and fueled by fury and necessity the brand that changed a thousand wardrobes was born. So much has gone into making a collection and doing a show that you need to let off steam at the end of it. And everyone really looked forward to the party at the end of it. And I was not going to disappoint them. (laughs) Now 78 and still beyond fabulous, Tanya joined me to talk about her memoir, Free Spirit, the snobbery of the fashion industry and the sexual harassment you just had to put up with in the 60s and 70s. We also discussed her alcoholism, rehab, anger, pain of losing her beloved business, the joy of marrying a younger man, her horrific menopause, and why she longs to go back on HRT. Before we start, I would like to show you something. Oh, a ghosty dress or a handwritten dress. It's ghost. Ghost. From 2003. It's a sample. Oh, lovely. It's one of my treasured possessions. Oh, you sweetheart. Never dry clean them. I would hand wash, is that right? No, machine wash, tumble dry. That's amazing. Machine wash, tumble dry, that was my whole thing that I wanted to do. Dry cleaners are expensive and they used to use horrid chemicals. I don't know if they still do. And, you know, my whole philosophy was that women should be able to throw clothes in the washing machine, tumble dryer and put them on. And... uh, Oh, I think... 
if you wash that in the washing machine and then tumble dry it, it doesn't shrink, it contracts and then it grows again. I fear it no longer fits me. Oh, but, sure <laughs> it will, because the fabric has so much natural stretch in it. How does it feel that you created a label that everybody loves? I don't think I know anybody who doesn't love it. I, I didn't realise I had. I had no idea that a lot of people came to our warehouse sale. I didn't expect it to be this remembered, put it that way. Your warehouse sale was a hot ticket. It was, yes. People used to fight over it. <laughs> I was lucky because when I was editor of Cosmo, my friend Shelley was the fashion director who then went on to You magazine. And she was such a massive fan of oh, Ghost. Really? She was an enormous fan. She's got, I think she's got dozens of pieces still. Everybody I know loved it. But one of the things that really comes across in the book, and I really identified with from my time working on magazines that weren't fashion enough, is that people loved it. Women loved it and wore it and kept it. But the fashion industry never really fully absorbed you, did it? No, she just makes clothes that women like to wear. To me, it was music to my ears. There's no higher compliment, is there? Why do you think the fashion industry is like that? Because it's still, isn't it? As I said in my book, when I offered to give lectures at one of the fashion colleges on the business of fashion, I was really put down and told fashion is art, not business. Oh. And, yeah. Did that get to you? Not really. I was cross with Draper's Record, the industry's magazine, when mm. they didn't when they didn't give me any press. When we left America and came back and they completely ignored me. I was angry because because it was a great business and it was loved by women. And all the readers of Draper's magazine were businesses, they were shops. They weren't the editor of Vogue. I'm sure the editor of Vogue's never even seen a Draper's record. So I was annoyed, yes. I think people, maybe they were jealous. I don't know. I don't know. I've been an outsider most of my life. It didn't really bother me that much. <laughs> How did that start? Was that at school? I mean, you were born in 45, weren't you? I spent the first three years in a children's home because my parents were refugees and they didn't have a home. Then we stayed with various friends of theirs. And I was an only child, and my parents always worked. They were both journalists. I was always on my own, brought up by my granny. So I just, I lived in my own head, and I just was very independent. I was used to being on my own, used to fighting my own corner. Did you have a lot of friends at school? Were you one of the clever kids? As I said in my book, it was a grammar school. I found myself in the sea stream. I worked incredibly hard that first year. I got 100% in all my exams and I wasn't moved up to a day stream. And when I asked why, they said it was because of my attitude. I think in those days, we're talking 45, 55, in the late 50s, there were no black kids in the school. All the girls were called Mary or Susan or maybe Margaret, and no one had heard the name Tanya before. I was first generation English, and they gave me attitude because they didn't move me up. So after that, I had real attitude when they didn't move me up. I tried, and they just thought I was very odd. 
So basically, you were more likely to get rewarded for being good than you were for being smart. Yes, or for being English and being called Susan, Mary or Margaret, but definitely not Tanya. And now the name is very popular, but no one had heard that name before. It's strange to think of, isn't it? Yeah. Did that shape you, do you think, being treated like that at secondary school? Did it shape your attitude to work and life? And I just couldn't wait to leave school. I couldn't wait to leave. I barely scraped through all my exams. I did just enough work to get through them. And I couldn't wait to leave. I was captain of the tennis team. <laughs> I was very good at sports, so except hockey, I hated hockey. So th- they accepted that I was good at tennis and I could be captain of the tennis team. Strange, isn't it? Coming of age, if you like, such a weird phrase, isn't it? 18, 21, whichever it was then, in the 60s, a kind of an attractive, smart young woman like you was basically expected to... I don't know, model and then do the marriage and babies thing in short order? I don't know. Yes, in a word. I think you only left home when you got married. You didn't go and share a flat with some friends. And I think if you weren't married by the age of certainly in your 20s, that was it. And you had to have babies in your 20s too. Yeah. It's one of the things when I was reading your book that really struck me is how much things were changing the whole time, socially, societally, but also how radically things have changed, like you say, even since the 80s, but particularly since the 60s and the expectations on you. But actually, you're talking about school. Your first kind of foray into dressmaking was with your gran, wasn't it? Yes. With school uniform. Tell us a little bit about that. We'd buy the fabric from the school suppliers and then I'd sit down with Granny and we'd work out what I wanted. It couldn't be too complicated. And Granny would do what I asked. And I would always get into trouble. The neckline was too low, the sleeves were too tight, the hem it was too short, too long. It didn't have this, it didn't have that. Yeah. Those were those were my very first attempts. That school uniform thing is always, it's funny, isn't it? Because I remember junior school in the 70s and everybody had to have this same green and white check dress. It was really horrible. But it came from the school supplier shop. Yeah. But my mum made me a green dress with, I think, her white daisies on. And I loved that dress until I kept wearing it to school and kept standing out because I was wearing the wrong dress. Mm -hmm. And then you just reach a point where you just want the same dress as everybody else because you just want a quiet life. Did you want to work in fashion back then, but it wasn't an option or was that something that came along later? It didn't occur to me to work in fashion. didn't occur to me. I wanted to be an actress. I wanted to be a model. I couldn't be a model because my breasts were too big. Models have to basically be a clothes hanger and Mm. I wasn't a clothes hanger. I had far too much shape everywhere. The acting, my parents wanted me to go to university and I wanted to be an actress. And I hung out with all these people from RADA, which is how I knew Terence Stamp and Michael Caine and Tony Booth and all those people. So after my experience in Italy, when I went for a screen test. Tell us about that, because that's horrifying, isn't it? Yeah, I met this producer, Franco Cancellier, in a club in London, and he said I was perfect to 
for the lead role in a film with Rosano Brazzi. Rosano Brazzi was the star of South Pacific, Three Coins in the Fountain, lots of big films at the time. He was the Italian heartthrob. My mother said, absolutely not. And I said, Mum, please, it's my big chance. So Franco came to dinner and he promised my mother, my father was never there, he promised my mother that it was all above board and he would take absolute care of me and she had no need to worry at all. So I got to Italy and met Rosano the first day, who was very charming and invited me to dinner the next day. It was the day before the screen test. And I put on my very best dress, which was a Marion Folan tuffin dress. And I only had one. <laughs> I lived in jeans and vintage blouses, vintage shirts. Got to his house. We had drinks in the living room. And then he said, I'd like you to meet my wife. So we went into this room, which was obviously her bedroom. And there was the biggest bed I'd ever seen covered in white satin with a rose and rows of white satin cushions. And there was this woman, large, huge, large woman with hair piled up on her head. And around her, she had six poodles. I was completely taken aback. I thought, my God, I've never, <laughs> seen, I've never seen anything like this in my life before. And at that point, a very unattractive man walked into the room and Rosanna turned around to me and said, would you mind very much, my dear? For our pre-dinner entertainment, would you make love with this young man in front of us? We would so enjoy it. And uh, that was the end of my acting career. Because <laughs> I, walked, I ran out of the room and there was a driver outside who drove me back to my hotel and locked me in. And uh, I came back to London and told my mother, yes, I'll go to university. <laughs> yeah, I'll do what you want. You were right, Mum. <laughs> I think many actresses at that time had to do an awful lot of sexual favours to get where they got to. It's so grim. There are lots of incidents in the book of what were sexual assault, sexual harassment, endless stories of you being leapt on in quiet country lanes. <laughs> no, there's only one of those. <laughs> oh, no, there was one I was left in a field near Heathrow Airport. But do you know what? I think it happens. It happened to a lot of women then, mm. a lot of young girls. It's like going with a group of girls to Hammersmith Tube Station. There were always flashes there men flashing their penises at us, and the girls would just laugh. They thought it was really funny. I think it happened to an awful lot of women. Mm. And also, in the 60s, if you had dinner with a man and he paid the bill, you were expected to sleep with him. It was very different then. And I think it still happens now to an awful lot of women, but now it's reported and now there's a fuss about it, and th there'll always be men like that. It, nothing new. No, I think it's the sense that comes across is that you just really did have to put up with it. Yes. It's just part yes. of the whole thing. <laughs> yes, like I'd go out to dinner with someone and they'd say, oh, let's go back to my place as a real treat. Will you let me beat you or the other way around? And I'd wander off and say, no, thank you. Because one wanted to be beaten up and the other one wanted a threesome, I recall. Yeah. Oh, God. I just thought it was all perfectly normal. Ran off me. Yeah. 
I don't know how different it was then. I think if you talk to an awful lot of women, they'd all tell you a lot of stories. Yeah, everybody's got a story, haven't they? And you've just got so many. When I put a picture of the book on my Instagram stories and somebody messaged me immediately, said, I've just finished reading it. I absolutely loved it. But all those horrible men, (laughs) did it feel like they were horrible at the time or was it just life? Just life. Just life. So you married, didn't you, when you were 24? And your kind of life in L.A. sounds, L.A. in the 70s, in theory, sounds incredibly glamorous. But some of the things you say really remind me of, I interviewed Julia Cameron, and she talks about going from being a journalist in Washington, marrying Martin Scorsese, going to L.A., and being just the wife. Yes. Was that your experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. I went from being independent, Tanya Gordon, which was my maiden name, to becoming overnight, I became Tanya, so I'm totally dependent on my husband, a total nobody with nothing to do. Culturally, you stayed with Mike quite a long time, didn't you? When my daughter was six weeks old, he left Los Angeles and went to Rome. We were apart a few months then. He was always going off somewhere, even when we were both in Brazil. I was there for two years, and I probably never lived with him there for more than three or four months. So the actual time we spent together was very short, and our marriage broke up long before the divorce. Yeah, why did it take 10 years, more or less, to get... It was about 10 years, wasn't it? 78 to 1987? Yeah, because... When did we split up with the children? When Claude was six, at 76? The main reason the divorce took so long was that he didn't reply to anything from court, anything from lawyers. He just ignored everything. And eventually I was awarded a divorce by default. By default, meaning that he had never responded to anything. And he still doesn't accept to this day that we're divorced. (laughs) Although he remarried and has three more children, when I see him, he still thinks we're married. But his brain isn't quite what it was. So you were separated when you were in your early 30s-ish and two small children. Yes. You're in debt and your mum had recently died. must have a core of steel to have gone, right, now I'm going to start a business because... I'm going to start a business, just decided. How did you get there? Yes, I was 31. I didn't have a core of steel. My mum dying then, she was the closest person to me. I didn't have any siblings. Obviously, my children were close to me, but my mum was everything. And she was helping me with the children. And my mum dying changed my life. It really changed my life, literally. I started drinking. I'd never really drunk before. And then I met a man who started giving me cocaine and it all went from there. But when my mum died with my marriage on the rocks, the reason we'd spent so little time together was that I was always trying to make it work. I would follow him around the world. Have I still got a husband? I need to make this work. We're married. I've been brought up to believe that. 
And when I tried to leave him once, my, my dad was furious. You made your bed, you lie in it, go back to him. So I'd been trying to make it work over the years, but it didn't. And when my marriage was on the rocks and my mum died, the grief, the absolute grief when I used to go literally drive for hours screaming my head off, turned to anger. And I was angry with the world. And I was just ready to fight it. I thought, life's a fight. I'm going to fight. And that's where it all began. My alcohol consumption, my drug use, and my determination to build a life for myself, despite everything. When I came back from Brazil, we were absolutely penniless. I was on Social Security, and my mum was helping with the kids. And uh, I bumped into this man in the street who I'd met in Brazil. I told him I was desperately looking for work. And he said if I could sell alpaca jumpers. I don't know if you remember, they were very, they were the in thing at the time with llamas and in bright yeah. colors. So I started selling those for him. In selling those, I went to the Paris trade fair. I made him a fortune, which he lost after I left. I would have to fight him every week for money. He hated paying me. So that's when I decided I needed my own business. I can't go through this all the time. And when I'd been at the Paris trade fair, I'd seen a label called Cacahuete, French company doing fashion sportswear. That seemed to me like a really good idea. There was no fashion sportswear here at that point. We're talking mid-70s, late 70s. Mm. There was nothing. So that's when I started Ms. And it was fashion sportswear, and it was doing really well. I started doing it from home with boxes filling up the living room. And boxes became too much for the living room, so then I got premises. I went through two partners, both of whom behaved disgracefully. My first partner, I didn't know, was married to a man whose family had a factory in the East End. And she basically took the fashion sportswear business away from me. And the, they developed something called Club Sport, which did very well. But after about the first year of the sportswear fashion, my attention had turned more to fashion. I didn't want to go on doing the same sportswear things, the tracksuit bottoms and the nice tops. I wanted more than that. And I'd seen enough at the trade fairs and I'd seen enough in the shops to know it was power dressing at that point, mm. big shoulders and structured suits. And I didn't like that fashion. And I wanted to do something much more feminine, much more wearable. And being a single mom, I knew that you needed clothes which you could throw in the washing machine and the tumble dryer. I saw a gap in the market for clothes for women for today who needed to do the school run, yeah, do the washing up, go to a meeting, all sorts of things. Women were multitasking and women didn't have the time to dress themselves like they used to years ago. My very first collection for Ghost was Washable Lamb's Wool, which had exactly what I wanted. It had the natural stretch. One piece would fit lots of different shapes, lots of different sizes. And it was machine washable. And then Andrea, my designer, came to me with this very hard Hessian type fabric. And I said, what do I want with that? And she said, boil a bit, boil it in a saucepan and see what happens. So I boiled it in a saucepan. And then I got the lovely viscose that you have in a dress there. 
it had shrunk more than 30%, between 30 and 40%. So I had to make that work. But it was the perfect fabric for me because it had all, it had natural stretch, it's machine washable, didn't shrink, the moths didn't like it. Oh, very important. No, that's really very, important. No, it's really important, yeah. You know, the reason you've got something after years and the reason that I have something after many years is that the moths don't like that fabric. All my lovely woolen things have got holes in, especially cashmere. They love cashmere. Yeah. I actually have four more ghost dresses, but the other four are all the bias cut, right. two, two full length and two kind of knee length, more like summer beach. And my favourite one, which is the black one, you can still fling it in a suitcase, yeah. get it out, put it on, end of conversation. And the bias ones you can wear no matter what size you are because they adapt to your size, which is that, why I love bias cutting. It was so radical at the time. Actually, it still is. Ozzy Clark had done lots of bias cuts in the 60s. But not functional and forgiving. Maybe not. Maybe it's fabric, I don't know. And Madeleine Vionnet had also done a lot of bias cutting. She was a big influence. If one goes back and looks at what she did, fashion comes round and round in circles, like music, lots of things. I guess for the time it was, the time I did it, there was nothing like it, no. Everything was really structured and power suity and power dressing-y. It took off so quickly, didn't it? You were growing exponentially within two or three seasons. The very first trade fair I did at Olympia in London, that's when the Americans used to come to England, a few of them, not many. And this American from Detroit got on my stand and he shouted out across the whole hall, it's money in the bank, folks. And uh, I mean, that <laughs> you can't imagine. I was swamped with American orders after that. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The success was due a lot to timing. I was lucky. The time was right for something like that. 
If you did something like that now, nothing would happen. But in all these things, it's the timing really comes into it. The culture of the time, the actual timing. Yeah. And what was it like learning to be a boss? You were a woman running your own business in 1985. How did you learn to be a boss? From ninety, from 78, I was my own boss. Yeah, I worked selling the alpaca jumpers from 76 to 78. And then from 78, I was on my own. I was never a, I was never a boss. They were all my friends. And, you know, I made everyone lunch to begin with. And then I had lunch made for everyone. And we had outings together. And people came to me with their problems. I would tell people that this needs doing and that needs doing, or I don't like the way this is done. But I don't think I was ever a, I was never remote. In the book, you describe the business as an informal family. And do you think that was maybe, because you must have been under so much pressure. You had all the staff and these orders going and the success of all the orders coming in. But that's a massive increased pressure, isn't it? Because you have to produce all the orders that kind of crazy speed you were working at and being responsible almost in a maternal way for your staff. Do you think that exacerbated your drinking and cocaine addiction? No, I think the fact that I had so little sleep (laughs) exacerbated it. I couldn't have done what I did if I'd slept, if I'd had eight hours sleep a night because my thinking was done at night. My thinking about where we were going, what the collection was missing, where should we show the next collection? All my thinking was done at night, and then the actual implementation was done in the daytime. I just point out that it's the same amount of work to produce 10 pieces as it is 10,000. Oh, really? Yeah. Assuming they're all the same, if it's Mm. the same design. When you've got 30 or 40 designs in a collection, which is the minimum we had, but each one of those pieces, it's the same amount of work to produce one of that style as it is to produce 10,000 of that style. It doesn't make any difference. So it's just the the, the finance to produce the quantity of fabric. Yes. Yeah. And getting the pattern right. And I think my skill, I did design some of the things, by the way, myself, but my main skill was making something, making a dress or making whatever it was, making a garment work, because you can give a sketch to 10 pattern cutters and you'll get 10 different pieces back. Mm -hmm. It's the interpretation of the sketch. So when the first sample came back and we put it on a body, I would move seam lines, sleeve lines, collars, length, hips. I would move a lot of things within that garment to make it work as best it could. And I think that was my major skill. Were your fit models, typical models, always? Were they always the kind no, of close no, hanger? No, we used anyone who was available. Yeah. <laughs> there was always someone working for us who was roughly a size 10 or a size 12. Yeah. Do you think that contributed to how wearable the clothes were? Yes. Models are clothes hangers. And if you fit something on a model, it's not going to fit you or me, even if you do it in different sizes. 
I was a magazine editor through the 90s and early noughties, and Ghost was always a fixture. But the parties, which you've written about at length in the book, the parties were always absolutely legendary. (laughs) And like the sample sales, the warehouse sales, the parties were also always a hot ticket. Was that part and parcel of Ghost for you? Yes, I think so. I don't know how that started. Probably my drinking and cocaine, but it wasn't just that. It's that people at the end of a show, so much has gone into it. So much has gone into making a collection and doing a show that you need to let off steam at the end of it. And everyone really looked forward to the party at the end of it. And I was not going to disappoint them. (laughs) So what was the catalyst for you, for that stopping, for you going to rehab? The shop opening in New York, where I was asleep when the shop was opening, my husband, Andrew, banging on the door, what the hell's going on here? I'd rented a small flat near the shop, and I hated the way it was done, so I'd been up all night rearranging furniture, moving his things, moving this and that and the other to make it somewhere where I felt at home, and then gone to sleep. My finance director wrote to me after that saying my behaviour was unacceptable. Andrew was going to leave me. And my daughter had been saying to me for ages, for God's sake, mum, look after yourself. For God's sake, mum, look after yourself. And I knew inside me that it couldn't go on. You can go on using a drug of any sort for so long and function really well, function better even. But there comes a point at which it goes too far. And I knew within me it had gone too far. And I, I came out of it really well. I was the star pupil at the rehab. I was allowed to leave the rehab and stay in a little cottage they had by the sea as long as I came in every day, along with one other person. And they had to be pretty confident to let you go and do that. And when I left, the gold coin I got said, on one side it said, live each day to the full. And on the other it said, shine like a star, something like that. Aim for the stars, shoot for the stars. I had the best things on either side of the coin that I could possibly get. But it took me a while afterwards. So I was vulnerable. I'd lost a lot of self-confidence. And it took me a while to build that up again. But I did. And I kept ghost going for another four years. But by that time, it wasn't because I stopped using. It was a change of times. Shops no longer bought deeply into, heavily into four or five collections. The public bought differently. People bought when they wanted something or they were going to a special party or something. It wasn't like the old days where people would come to London or go to a good shop and buy the outfits for spring or the outfits for winter. All that had gone completely. And shops didn't know really what their customers wanted anymore so they were buying little bits from lots and lots of collections buying habits had changed so ghost was actually not doing as well by then it was doing okay but not as well which is why Riz my finance director wanted to open shops and he wanted to open lots of shops which is why he got people in who were going to open a thousand shops for us worldwide and they bought against my judgment 
but I think when I stopped, I wasn't quite as determined or angry or quite as strong as I had been before. I was much more vulnerable. So I, when I was told to sign the contract, I did. And we were signing away 51% of the business. And shortly afterwards, I was put on garden leave and asked to leave. But in the contract, I was managing director. And I'd made sure of that when I signed. I said, yes, mm. but what am I? And they said, oh, you're managing director. And I said, are you sure? You know, nothing's going to change. And, oh, no, nothing's going to change. You're managing director. So when they asked me to leave, there's nothing I could do because they had 51%. Broke my heart. But they went bankrupt two years later. Did you feel like even though it was really sad because it was your baby, were you basically a little bit pleased? <laughs> when they went bankrupt yeah. or when I sold it? No, when the business went down because they were so rubbish. Oh, I was thrilled. <laughs> I was overjoyed. <laughs> I was overjoyed. If I hadn't started another business by then, I'd already was a year into handwritten. I would probably have bought it back. But I was a year into handwritten. And they'd rubbished it so badly that it would have needed so much money to pour into it. The people who got rid of me put this woman in charge. She was already there when I was still there. When I met this woman, <laughs> she was just awful. She'd started getting rid of pieces, which I loved already when I was there. And I pulled her into a corner and said, Look, if we're going to work together, I know you're in charge of retail and I'm doing wholesale and design, but we do need to get on and shall we try? And she just walked out of the room. She wouldn't shake hands with me. And apparently after I left, she got rid of every single sign of me and the staff were not allowed to talk to each other anymore. They could only communicate by email. So the whole ethos of Ghost just totally 100% changed. So stupid, isn't it? So, and you see it happen over and over again. People buy things and then systematically destroy the thing they've bought. You said just now you said you hate being 78. But from where I'm sitting, this is a really bad way to say it, but you're like an aging role model because you've been, you were so successful through your 40s and 50s. You learned to fly, learned to fly <laughs> in your 50s. You got engaged at 60, you got married at 70. You've been on fire at a point when we're all supposed to go away and learn knitting. <laughs> I married a man much younger than me, but that has little to do with it. I don't know, I like life. I'm not going to rot away in a rocking chair as long as I've got the ability to move around and do things. I hate exercise, but I force myself. I do an exercise class every week for an hour, and I play tennis about three or four times a week. This hand shakes. I, I, I can't. <laughs> I've got to sort it out, and I've got dreadful arthritis in this shoulder. What the hell? One only has one life. I'm going to live it as long as I can and keep smiling. And all the old people I've met in my life have been so grumpy they have, yeah, because it's like me. I don't understand modern technology. They don't understand what the hell's going on. Can you imagine how life has changed so dramatically over my lifetime? If I think my first business, I had a something called a telex machine. Yes, yeah. No one's ever heard of a telex. 
these days. Yeah, I had to learn to use a fax machine when I started. Yeah. Well, that's quite modern, a fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> I have to confess my computer skills are very limited, which is why I do appreciate my husband understanding them. He does programs for radio for he's an independent. So he's very good on sound and computers and things. Have yeah. your health because you've had some I don't know whether health scares is the right word. You've had three brain operations, haven't you, for non-malignant yeah. tumors and you had breast cancer. Yeah. Do you think but that's the major brain operations were horrid. I had I had a growth on my pituitary gland which was sticking into my optic nerve. So my eyes, I was seeing everything elongated. Oh, and like through a letterbox. Oh, yuck. And my lovely local optician in Salisbury found it. And uh, yeah, and I had three operations going through my nose, through the sinuses, that way. And bloody thing kept growing back. Wow. So in the end, I had six weeks every day of radiotherapy. And it hasn't gone, but it's not active anymore. In fact, I'm waiting for the results of an MRI at the moment. I had an MRI about you know, three weeks ago. I think they would have been in touch with me if it was serious. I think you'd have heard back by now. I think yeah. I would have heard. No, I've had lots of bits of me taken away over the years. <laughs> it's amazing how one can survive with <laughs> lots of bits gone. Yeah. And your breast cancer? You've got the all clear, five-year all clear, I got you? the five-year all, all clear the other day, actually, a week ago or two weeks ago. That's um, brilliant. Congratulations. But I still, yeah, yes, but, oh, I'd love to go back on HRT. Ah, uh, so you went off HRT when you got Well, breast it was estrogen positive, my cancer. So they think it was the HRT that caused it. I'm not convinced. And I don't think, I think women's medicine has been, is so behind compared to other areas of medicine. Like they took my ovary out when I was 11. There was no need to take my ovary out. They should have given me progesterone. I was short of progesterone. Um, Weren't they yeah. worried about that affecting your fertility at such a young age? Yes, they were. They told me I couldn't have children. Okay. Just <laughs> like that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, see ya. Yeah. yeah, we've taken your ovary out. You can't have children. Well, happily, they were wrong, but yes, yeah. no. Women's medicine is way behind where it should be. And whether it's the estrogen that caused the cancer or not, I don't know. What I do know is that HRT helped me live. I had such bad menopausal problems. I literally had to go and hide myself when I had a hot flush coming on mm -hmm. because I'd literally get drenched and want to faint. And How old were you then when it started? Early, very early 40s. Oh, so young as well. Yeah, probably because I only had one ovary. Don't know. It saved my life, HRT. It's been, if you need it, not all women have bad menopausal problems. But if one does, HRT is a real saviour. And I hear the NHS have just put a special price now so that all women can get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to go back on it. It would give me more of a life than I've got. But I've been told categorically that I really risk the cancer coming back if I do go back on it, so I'm not going to. But I get hot flushes now as a result. Oh. They're not as bad as they're not nowhere near as bad as they used to be. I just get little hot flushes. Oh God, not not the kind of tropical storm. No. Drenched. <laughs> yeah. 
no, one has to keep on smiling and make the best of life. One really does, because what else is there? And I'm so lucky. I've got a man. I'm really lucky. I have a wonderful husband. You met him. Yes, Uh, very nice. He's absolute sweetie pie. Absolute darling. I've got five of the most gorgeous grandchildren, one of whom is at Oxford. I'm very close to both my kids now and their respective spouses. And I live in a lovely house. And people like the book I've written. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people still have loads of your dresses in their wardrobes. And I'm a little bit frightened to go out here in the country because in case someone saw the Times headlines, cocaine made me fearless. Oh, yes. <laughs> Quite honestly, I've heard stories about it being in the toilets at number 10 Downing Street. And so many people take it now. It's not like shooting up with heroin or something. Yeah. <laughs> And it did give me energy, got me out of bed in the morning because I'm very happy to lie in bed and play Sudoku. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, me too. I get these Sudoku books delivered every month. <laughs> I paid a subscription somewhere and oh. they send me a book every month. <laughs> it's meant to be really good for your brain, isn't it? That's why I do it. I hope it is. I don't know that it is. Before I release you back into your life, can I ask you the questions that I always ask at the yes. end? Yes. What is your emotional age? Oh, goodness me. Some levels it is my age. And on some levels, it's probably a teenager. I don't think my emotions have changed between my 60s and now. I'm probably just as emotional now as I was many years ago. Can you give us a book recommendation? So it could be something that you've always loved or something good that you've read lately, except other than your own? I'm um, trying at the moment to read Papa John, the autobiography of John Phillips. Oh, yes. Wrote, since he ruined my husband and was so awful to me, but I'm finding it very difficult to read. <laughs> Is it too close to the bone? No, it's just, it just doesn't have any charm in it. Like its subject, maybe? Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. What advice would you give younger women? I suppose do what you want to do, not what society tells you to do. Follow your own instincts. Do you feel like you did that? No, I didn't really, because I got married to leave home and I went to university when I saw what acting involved. (laughs) So, But I did, on many other levels, I did do what I wanted to do. I did. I followed my own instinct. Yeah. And you certainly did with your business. One thing thing I didn't put in the book was before I married Michael, there was this very wealthy Jewish Hatton Garden young man who got down on his knees and proposed to me and said he'd look after me for the rest of my life. I'd never have to worry about anything. And would I marry him? (laughs) I said, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, So I did always follow what I wanted to do. Yeah. Who is an older woman who's inspired you? Carol King. Oh, Carol King, yes. I love music. I love music. Every song that Carol King wrote, I just have total admiration for her, the way she plays the piano, all the music she's written. Brilliant. Yeah. What's your superpower? I'm a pantheist. What's one of those? A pantheist? (laughs) Einstein was a pantheist. 
a pantheist believes that God is in every living thing. So in nature, in every living thing. And my superpower are trees. I talk to trees. Have you always done that? For many years I have. Just nature, believing in nature, believing that there is good in everyone. I don't think it's necessary to define a higher power. And I do believe that there is good in everyone, if they can find it. And I do believe that if there is something called God, it is in every living thing. And lastly, as you've got older, do you care more or less what people think of you? Less. At all? Yeah, don't care. When did you stop, do you think? I don't know. I suppose as one gets older, one cares less and less what people think of one. So probably in the last 10 years, or even maybe in the last five years. That's really nice. I just want to say thank you because some of my favourite clothes ever were ghosts. And I know oh, how that lovely I am of you. Thank a you. long way from alone in that. How lovely of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. I'm so flattered that you've still got ghosts and you like it so much. Oh, I'm definitely not the only one. Okay. (laughs) Thank you and good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.